Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tim, why don't you bring in the esteemed economist from City? Oh Park. yes, and in fact, I have to say, I was just uh, watching it on uh, watching you speak with Catherine Mann, uh, Citigroup's global chief economist, uh, while you were on television. Catherine Mann, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much for being here. Can you explain what the real relationship is between the performance of the U.S. economy and the performance of the U.S. stock market? Well, actually, the two of them make sense right now. I mean, the U.S. economy is doing extremely well. I mean, the, the unemployment rate is quite low. Uh, there's a tax cut. Um, profits are high. Uh, growth is strong. Uh, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that stocks should be um, very elevated. Now, you got to ask the question, though. Um, we knew that growth was going to be really strong, and we knew that unemployment was going to be really low, and we knew everybody was going to get a tax cut. So maybe it's a little overdone. When you say overdone, meaning the exuberance, the enthusiasm to buy stocks? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, there's quite a bit of enthusiasm. Uh, a lot of people are buying stocks. And uh, you got to ask, what is the new information that um, is being incorporated in the stock valuations that we have today? I think that's really the question, because I'm not sure there's much new information that would uh, warrant um, this much exuberance. Well, how about new information that looks at the U.S. stock market relative to what's happening in the rest of the world, whether it be Turkey or China or continental Europe and Brexit or indeed even Brazil and Argentina? And as a result, you take a second look and you think that decision to sell U.S. equities and go someplace else is a decision that you're not going to make right now. Well, again, I mean, my view is, is that um, there are a lot of... Um emerging markets that actually are very good opportunities. Um, and all of the emerging markets are sort of being tarred with the same brush and looking, you know, there are some definite places that you do not want to invest, but there are a lot that you, where you do want to invest. Uh, they do represent opportunities. And, and so I where think would that, you be booking a ticket to go and check out the companies? Um, Indonesia, Malaysia, I would I would also look at some um, some Latin countries, Peru, Chile, Colombia. These are countries that we don't hear about a whole lot, but in fact, they have uh, been extremely disciplined in terms of their policies, <clears throat> and they they represent uh, good opportunities. Now you got to wonder about the neighborhood. We always have to wonder about the neighborhood, um, but you know it, whether it be Asia or whether it be Latin America or Europe. But you right. know there are good opportunities. This is a really important insight because, as you say, nobody focuses on Peru except. I had a wonderful conversation with the president of Peru two years ago about that distinction of Peru. This goes back to Douglas. Kuczynski? Was that uh, yeah, Per Pablo yeah, Kuczynski? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this goes back to Douglas North at Washington University in St. Louis about the strength and need of institutions. Mm -hmm. And really what mm -hmm. we're really talking about in this debate is country A doesn't have the institutional structure, leadership, and governance in a country really can be adjacent, can be fine. I mean, it's really what we're talking about in all this, isn't it? Well, I, as I say, I, I think the neighborhood does matter. I mean, uh, it, there's no question that that if you're surrounded by a challenging, uh, a challenging environment, you don't get, you're not, you're not going to do as well 
as you know a situation where you have um, the opportunity to trade with your neighbors, uh, and that's that's beneficial for both. So you know you 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 do care about the neighborhood, but on the other hand, uh, getting back to you know the choices that investors have to make, um, do you do which which place are you going to get more value? Uh, you know the S and P or on a more disaggregated basis, individual companies, uh, maybe some companies that we don't hear about so much in the United States, and some companies in countries that we don't hear about so much. So it, the, it, it's, you know, we talk about activist versus pacifist investing. Um, this is a time to be an activist investor and really, you know, do your homework and do your analysis and figure out what the good deals are. Point taken, and I'm wondering whether you, when you speak about countries such as Peru and Chile and Colombia, are you talking about commodity-driven economies? Well, Peru's not. Well, Peru does have commodities, so there, there are commodity elements to it for sure. But um, these are countries that actually have have been able to diversify. They also have been able, as I say, have disciplined policies, and that is something that uh, that has been important for uh, the stabilization of those economies and to put them on a growth path. And to have the actual determination, and I would say conviction to stay in if indeed there are any short-term declines in the value of these companies or assets that you describe mm -hmm. because of the mistakes or the headline reading that goes on around them to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. That means you've got to have the same kind of wherewithal, let's say, with the United States. If stocks were to decline, do you see any possibility that we're going to have a correction in asset values? Well, I, I think there, you know, as we think about the sort of the pathway that the um, that the Federal Reserve is on, uh, which is to, uh, m in a measured pace, in increase uh, interest rates, increase the policy rate. Uh, you know, we have to think about what does the you know that do for uh, other financial assets. Um, and I think there's a right. question as to whether or not uh, if we get another, you know, 75 basis points, what does the financial market look like at that point? Robert Engel, the laureate of NYU, talks about Garch and hugely fancy econometrics. But what it comes down to is at some point the, the, the system seizes up. You know, uh, Pim talks about asset prices and the fear that they'll go down. What do you what do you observe in hindsight that we should watch to determine if the system seizes up? Is it just simply foreign exchange? Is the global litmus paper, or do you have to look at short term paper, full faith and credit two years? What's what's the thing you watch every day on your four Bloomberg terminals at your desk? <laughs> uh, so uh, I do look at uh, quite a variety of things, but what what I look at it, it right now is I'm I'm looking at what I see are a variety of of risks uh, across asset prices that seem to be a little bit underpriced. Uh, let's talk about credit risk, for example, um, when you can have a a high yield bond or a covenant light loan and you're paying very very little for it. Uh, you're figuring out at some point that that's going to go bad. Uh, we can also look again. I, I think that the you know the stock market is an interesting. Uh, animal. I mean, it, we all know that that financial markets do herd, and uh, you know, again, I have to ask the question: What is the new news that warrants the uh, degree of exuberance that is in the market today? Well, I want to maybe just well, not get to the whole question because we're going to come back and spend more time with you, Catherine. But if people are buying at the short end of the curve, 
right? That everyone's yeah. talking shorter and shorter and shorter. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why are rate? Why is the the, the curve so flat? Wouldn't that make? Does that make sense to you? I mean, wouldn't prices just increase and increase? Well, there are. I mean, this is we we spend many hours uh, <laughs> and talk with many people about this question about um, what's going on with the ten-year yield. Uh, that being a, an important factor, important anchor to to many financial decisions, and uh, we can go through a number of different uh, arguments for what's going on with it but you know there are there are issues about mm -hmm. uh the flows into 10-year uh long duration bonds that come from other countries uh who currently have very low interest rates oh. on their sovereign obligations sovereign debt and so if you if sovereigns is really what you want then the u.s is really your best That's the only your, way your, 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 you Let, know your best thank you Catherine, problem Thank you so much. A wide discussion today with the chief uh, global economist for a Citigroup, Catherine uh, Mann. Let's talk about what's going on in politics for just a second. Uh, or on the budget. Him, yeah. Yeah, well, budget as well. Uh, Stan Collender, of course, uh, he's an executive vice president and national uh, director of financial communications for uh, MSL Group in the United States. And Stan Collender, it's always a pleasure to hear what you've got to say about what's going on in Washington. My question is, how long do you believe Attorney General Jeff Sessions is going to have that job? Uh, let's see, election day is November 6th, so maybe the 7th. Really? that That's what's going to happen? Well, uh, look, it's not like Donald Trump calls me and tells me what his plans are, but um, it, it looks as if he's been lobbying, and the reports are that he's been lobbying the Democrat and Republican senators to say, I want to get rid of this guy, and you've got to let me do it. Um, and so right after the but election— But why can't he do it? What is it? He doesn't need their approval. No, no, he doesn't need their approval, but um, he does need them to uh, confirm a replacement, number one. Number two, he doesn't want to do it before the elections where it might have some impact on the voting. Uh, and three, he wants the, 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 the Mueller probe to move a little bit further along so it doesn't look like he's trying to obstruct justice. Um, so uh, it doesn't make any sense for him to do it before the election, and all the reporting is it right afterwards. Look, it wouldn't be surprising if two years after an election, the president replaces many people in his cabinet. The difference is that in this case, a lot of people have been replaced already. Stan, you've got in one of your notes an alarming observation, for, for at least for me. You put a chance of a government shutdown at 6-0, I just didn't know that. Well, normally you would say in, in a situation like the, like we're in now that it would be a very low possibility. That is, the Republicans in the majority in both houses don't want it because it'll keep them in Washington and enable, unable to go home and campaign and hold fundraisers. Um, that they need to campaign, because, especially in the House, because there may be a Democratic wave or a Democratic takeover. But that same situation is what gives Donald Trump the ability – it gives him additional leverage to get money for his wall. That is, if, if the Republicans want to go home and he, he has the ability to keep them here, he has some leverage to say, give me the money for the wall or you're not going anywhere. Also, the, Trump may need to use the wall and, and it, the impact on the immigration issue yeah. to help him with his, uh, his voters, his base, uh, which is particularly important yeah. because of all the other legal stuff going on. I, so. I mean, I saw this tweet, and, I, and I'm sorry, Pim, I wasn't sure if it was from Donald J. Trump or Stanley Collender. Here it is. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner had nothing to do 
with the so-called pushing out of Don McGahn. The fake news media has it purposely so wrong. They love to portray chaos in the White House when they know that chaos doesn't exist. Just a, and this is Colander classic, quote, just a smooth running machine with changing parts. Is that our budget process, Stan in Washington? All right. First of all, I did not write that. Tweet. Oh, you did. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, second, did you did you see the news this morning, Tom and Pim, that Pim that uh, another member of the White House uh, Counsel's Office who t- handles their ethics investigations is leaving Friday. That is tomorrow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, 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 there, is, there is nothing here that's going on in the White House. It's smooth. But, Tom, you've got to say the budget process, to the extent that there is one, is even worse. That is, there is no process. There was no budget resolution this year. We're way behind on all the appropriations. There's only 11 legislative days before the start of the fiscal year, and nothing has been enacted. Nothing's even been sent to the White House for evaluation. So, Don't the, Doesn't the majority have the power to do that? Oh, absolutely. Budget resolutions cannot be filibustered. But the, the reason they didn't do it this year is that they didn't want to take votes on trillion-dollar deficits before the election. So, I mean, it's legally required to do a budget, but they just – there's there's no enforcement if Congress doesn't want to do it themselves. And the, yes, the Democrats could filibuster uh, appropriations in the Senate, so the majority of the Republicans don't have full control. But has anyone heard the word compromise recently in Washington? Probably not. That could get these bills done if they had committed to them months ago. They could have got them done by the start of the fiscal year and taken away any chance of a government shutdown. Stan Collender, midterm elections. Handicap them for us. Well, look, uh, I, I, am, I am not the elections forecaster that uh, several other people are, but from every uh, the people I trust and I go to for advice and information, it looks as if the Democrats, as of today, will take over the House by maybe 20, with maybe 20 seat margin. That's not enough to get anything done next year, but it's enough to stop a lot of things from happening. The Senate seems a little bit more problematic for the Democrats, uh, only because the map is so diff- difficult that uh, the Republicans might even gain a couple of seats while the Democrats take over the House. Um, but look, we're we're only what two months away from the election, and anything could happen. Especially given the uh, the let's let's call it a, a craziness of the president a little bit. Uh, we just don't know where things are going. The popularity of the president connected to the strength of the U.S. economy. In your thought. Only to a certain extent. Uh, obviously, if the economy were, were not doing as well as it's doing, the president's would, would, popularity would probably be down five points or so. But let's go back to something he said during the campaign. He could shoot somebody in Times Square and his, his base would still stay with him. Um, I, I think you'd find the same thing here. That is that the economy is not the only issue. It's abortion. It's immigration. It's uh, this, MAGA th- this MAGA feeling, uh, you know, emotional issue. Um, so that uh, you know, the economy would have to go down very far, very fast for him to lose a lot of his base support. What's your number right now? I mean, CBO, I guess we're due for another renumber, but are we at 1.3 or 1.4 trillion out there at some point? You mean for a deficit? <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, well, look, we're probably going to hit, we'll hit 1.1 trillion in, in 2019. Maybe a little bit higher if we get a space force and a and a twenty five billion for the wall and God knows what else for infrastructure, um, but CBO is saying that it's only going to go up from there, not down. And if there's a uh, if, if there's an economic downturn, Tom, even a mild downturn, we're talking about a deficit that will approach two trillion easily 
easily. Wow. And, and, and it'll wow. be, uh, that'll be a combination of 1.1, 1.2 permanent deficits and, and about $800 billion in uh, cyclical changes. So this is the first I've ever heard this, Pim. Are you willing to say the $2 trillion number given some form of migration of GDP south? GDP comes in under 2%, Stan? Where we 4.2% And that's how you get to 2 now. trillion? Well, we're, yeah, uh, Tom, uh, we're at 4.2 trillion, PIM, uh, 4.2% last quarter. Quarter, right. So it, it's not clear that it's going to be a, 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 in fact, it's very clear that it's not going to be a long-term trend. Um, but Tom, uh, if you look at the CBO numbers, they have the economy uh, growing at less than 2%. Yeah. And, and that's the point at which you start to get, uh, you know, deficits of $1.5, $1.6 trillion. So, so to be clear here, when we get under 2 point what? Do we get, begin to see that incremental deficit add-on? Well, it depends on what you're assuming. Uh, I, right I, now, right I, now we're assuming about a 3% growth rate, or the administration's assuming about a 3% growth rate. Once you start getting below that, the deficit gets higher than you were yeah. projecting. Um, and, and, you know, at, at, one, at below 2%, uh, you get the numbers that CBO was looking at. Stan, thank you so much. Stan Collender, uh, the budget guy. Of course, writing for Forbes, piercing short articles for Forbes uh, that really cut through all the the blab. Joining us now uh, within the uh, morning chaos of uh, moving to Canada and moving on to the tweets of the day is Andy Hunt uh, with Wells Fargo. Andy, have you tweeted this morning? Have you had, you know, anything about cross-asset policy in your tweet stream this morning? Uh, sadly, no, I'm not not active. You have an exceptionally sophisticated chart leading off your research note on Jensen's Alpha, which I'm going to guess is some form of relative performance. Where is the best value now on a relative basis within the markets? So we, uh, we still like uh, U.S. credit, though less maybe than we have in times recently passed, um, the consumer, the state of the U.S. economy, uh, the fundamentals are very strong and, and technicals are, are still positive with um, uh, relatively little issuance coming in some parts of the market. So we, we still see um, still value in the U.S. credit, um, credit sector. Within this, is at some point it will end. Within fixed income, what signs do you look for where you say price up and yield lower is going to end. What are the signals uh, that you look for, Mr. Hunt? So, uh, interesting question. We, we, there is some signs of, uh, of late cycle behavior. I mean, people ask, you know, where are we at in the economic and credit yeah. cycle and, and then what innings are we in? And I do kind of happily say we're in the eight or ninth innings, but happily to suggest it might be a 10 or 11 innings match. But we are getting there late in the cycle, and there is some late cycle behavior um, appearing in some parts, particularly, I would say, in the, um, the U.S. loan market, where we see many of the protections and the indentures that are weakening, the covenants are lightening, and um, you know, that's on a number of fronts. But that, that's this maybe an early warning sign. Happily to say, though, that we think you know, many of the signals that some people are pointing to don't suggest an imminent uh, recession or imminent problem. You, we might be two or three years out from from a worry state. Andy Hunt, it is not a new Netflix original. It is not a new movie. What is Jensen's Alpha? 
and why is that something we need to learn about? So we've, it's a measure of risk-adjusted uh, value-add or risk-adjusted return. So it's a way of adjusting for a portfolio's beta and then seeing what alpha is left over. So it's, it's kind of a, a fancy way of just saying outperformance or genuine outperformance after um, beta-adjusting the, the, the performance stream. And are people trying to outperform in a market that is just not going to help them when you've got the NASDAQ up more than 17%? and the S&P 500 approaching a 9% return this year? So um, everyone's always trying to outperform. Um, The the question is, where is it easier or harder to outperform? And my my chart you're referring to um, centers around the fixed income markets primarily. And it was a research piece we did, which was just trying to um, ask ourselves the question whether passive mandates were going to make great inroads into the fixed income management landscape, um, as we've seen in the equity markets, you know, 40 plus percent of money is now invested passively in equity. And I saw a stat to say that around 20 percent of fixed income markets um, were passively no. invested. To and p- so the question was, you know, can active managers justify their existence by continuing to provide risk adjusted outperformance? Uh, Andy Hunt, uh, uh, Pim Fox asks a really, really sophisticated question about the three differentials of Trainer, Jensen, and Sharp. And I thought your answer was great on Jensen Alpha, but what this really comes down to is a study of beta and the study of relative performance within an individual security or a portfolio. And here's the critical question for Global Wall Street and everybody else as well. Does that mathematics and dynamics still work in a time of ETFs, bundled products, and index funds? I think so, because essentially, you know, what you're getting with an ETF, if you're if it's a good one and if it performs as you hope it does, you, you kind of get what you buy, which is the market beta. And then the question is, well, what's left over? You either allocate between ETFs and add value by you know, sector selection asset allocation, or you try and beat the ETFs at their game, which is getting better access to the part of the market that you're trying to target. And so I think these measures, um, risk-adjusted performance or alpha-type scores, are very relevant because yeah. alpha is an uncorrelated form of return if it's done well. And it's almost like another risk premium to harness if you can find parts of the market which are inefficient that you know, you can find a better access point than a, than a right. passive ETF. And so that's the purpose of this this trainer ratio analysis was to, to substantiate that, you know, many parts of the fixed income market do show evidence of inefficiencies and therefore consistent opportunity for alpha. What does active management need to do in bonds to take the high ground back from index funds? Is there, a to, is there an Andy Hunt to-do list? on what needs to be done besides simple security selection, bond selection. Yeah, is it like things like private debt? I mean, I mean, I mean Andy, bank loans? You gotta, you got, Andy, you got to understand our sophistication. On Pim Fox's desk is the E.F. Hutton Blue S&P bond book from okay. what, like 1963? Yeah, 64. 64 or something. Yeah. I mean, that's the level of sophistication here. So. I'm sure you're selling yourself <clears throat> way short. Um, um, yes is the answer. I think um, the... the Fixed income indices and therefore ETFs that center on them or passive managers that focus on them are not that great. You know, that's a sweeping statement, and I'm sure people have criticized me for it, but I think there's plenty of room for improvement. We've seen a lot 
So as well as traditional active management of fixed income, which I think is alive well and has a very vibrant future, I think there's a middle ground where we've seen in the equity space uh, a lot of so-called smart beta um, uh, initiatives and, and, and work done, a lot of research around factors and, and rewarded risk factors within equity. We've seen you know, size, momentum, low vol. Those types of concepts need to wash across the fixed income and also become embedded in the in the vernacular, in the, in the, the taxonomy of, of, of products. So you have plain, traditional, passive against standard market benchmarks, the, the market issuance, market cap style benchmarks we all know and love and have kind of blindly invested in for years. You've had active managers against them. And then in between, I think you'll, you'll see this growth of, of a smart beta future where we'll have the rewarded risk factors, the better benchmark constructions created to give again, more efficient access to what really you're trying to get, which is efficient yield, um, characteristics such as duration that you want, but, but broad-based yield from diverse income sources that then you know, generate that, 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 that reliable income stream that, that, frankly, bond investors wish. Andy Hunt, if you have to choose between purchasing loans in order to get the yield or high-yield bonds... Where does Andy Hunt recommend you put the money, loans or high-yield bonds? We have two answers to that. I would say in the States, we go for bonds over loans. But out of Europe, we might turn that around and say loans over bonds. Why is that? The, the, different, the different players in the market and the different recent history of the market, the oil energy market uh, well, crisis of a couple, three years ago, Kind of taught the bond market, uh, kept the bond market honest, and, and gave it some discipline. And we see good issuance, good indentures, good good behaviours, and, and without yeah. excess leverage or excess um, uh, supply coming in the bond market. Whereas in the states, the loan market is is being fed by um, an awful lot of sort of issuance for CLO use, and, and we see weakening covenants, and we worry that 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 implies. A, a, a problem around the the, the corner. Yeah. Obviously, loans prepay at will, and therefore you don't get all the upside if things go well. But if things go badly, you sit with a spread widening instrument, and it's not yeah. fun. Um, in Europe, uh, the the nature of the beast is a little different. Uh, they didn't have the oil energy problem, therefore, kind of the market didn't sort of have that wake up call a couple three years ago in the bond market. Um, and on the loan market, it, because of the nature of the beast, again, you don't have you, the, the rules around USITS funds, particularly, which is the, the mutual fund equivalent in, in Europe. Um, they don't permit loans only USITS funds. It's just the regs don't allow yeah, it. Right. And therefore, it kept the retail investor out of the loans market. And so it's more of an institutional market and it's kept its, um, Interesting. its quality better. This has been wonderful. Andy Hunt, thank you so much with Wells Fargo. Just thrilled to have you on today. He is co head at their global fixed income and, and head of loan and global credit. He went to Milton Academy where the entire hockey team was Canadian. Then he went to Yale University, where he ate at every Mexican restaurant, alternating with pizza. We welcome Austin Goldsby, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He holds court in the land of the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox, and we welcome him this morning. Austin, on the complexities of trade, which come down to 
political simplicity. What are you listening for in this argument between Canada and the United States in this separate argument of Mexico in the United States? What has your attention? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back again, Tom. Um, What has my attention, I guess, is whether it remains what it is now, which I would characterize as a bunch of minor, small stuff. And that makes me feel better. Any, as, my, as I say, any day that we don't have a trade war is a good day for the economy. And so if we want to argue about should we put in some little provision that applies to one sector or one thing or something and they can agree on that and by agreeing on that they don't engage in a full-blown trade war then that's great um so i don't anticipate i guess my prediction is that canada wouldn't have too much problem with the things that the that the u.s and mexico agreed to because they were they were a bunch of small Right. things that they seemed less they seemed less significant than what Canada had already right. agreed to for the TPP which which was thrown out so right. I, I would think that we could get to a to a deal pretty quickly right. to, to give President Obama and President Trump credit they're dealing in a different world than the world of GATT, of Uruguay of what we did out of World War II and onward in trade. In this modern trade debate, what does President Trump get right? Uh, look, I, I have made no secret. I don't think he's getting much right. I think he has, President Trump has in his mind a zero-sum world in which uh, nobody, there, there are only winners and losers. We can't do anything that makes us both better off. Um, and... I think the emphasis on bilateral deals rather than building robust institutions for the whole world, I think that's a mistake. Um, so I don't know that on trade, Donald Trump's getting a lot right. I guess I would say that one thing that he's getting right, he's not the first to discover it, is that there are uh, non-tariff barriers and non-tariff things going on in the world of trade that do matter, like that the Chinese take the intellectual property, they force people that invest in China to turn over their blueprints and, and hand over their technology. He, he's getting that right. Um, I just disagree with how he's, he's trying to address that, but I, but I do think he's diagnosed that problem right. Austin Goolsby, is the World Trade Organization an effective forum for mitigating or remediating trade problems between nations? Does it work? Yeah, mostly it has worked. Um, If the United States tries to blow it up, it's definitely not going to work anymore um, because we're one of the linchpins of it. The... I mean, I can I can tell you my view of what's good and what's bad about the WTO. What's Go ahead. Good is far more important than what's bad, and what's good is it's a it's an institution that allows not objective but kind of an objective view that all the countries that participate agree we will treat each other with at least this much respect. Uh, you can't put specific tariffs on a WTO 
country, you have to they have to be treated as a most favored nation status. To sign up for WTO, you have to agree to abide by certain conventions, and if you don't, you can be called to account. You can the and the U.S. has benefited significantly, filing WTO grievances, receiving compensation, or forcing countries to stop their protectionist stuff against the United States. The the what's been wrong with the WTO, or what's proved hard as the decades have gone on, is there are countries, most especially China which joined the WTO as a small emerging market, which they kind of give small, poor countries more latitude than big, developed economies. So China got in and follows the rules of a small emerging market, and now they're the second biggest economy in the world. So it's a it's a it's an uncomfortable fit of how that yeah. um of, of how they're treated. But overall, the WTO has been far, far more beneficial to the U.S. Right. economy as well as to the world than, than what its problems have been. I mean, there's no uh, doubt about that. Professor Goolsby, thank you so much. This has been incredibly yeah, well great talking to you guys. Again. Austin Goolsby, thank you so much for the Booth School of Chicago, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.